Job chapter 6, we'll continue on in our series of not going verse by verse, but looking around the book of Job. And we're moving past now the science part where we looked at all the amazing scientific information that was given in the book of Job and other parts of the Old Testament that is interesting and speaks to the authenticity of the Bible. And some of these are just interesting passages and highlights to hit, though if we make it to Job 19 in a moment, there's some amazing doctrine that brings in New Testament type doctrine that Job was expressing. Let's look at verse number 24, Job 6, 24. We're dealing now with the point where Job's friends had come around and he was quiet. I believe it said for seven days they sat with Job seeing that he was grieved and then they began to speak. But when they began to speak, we know that their answers had a lot of troubles. And part of what they did was they accused Job and they accused him falsely. They basically expressed the sentiment through all the chapters of saying, if you are going through such an incredible amount of trials, it must be because in some way you have sinned and have brought this upon yourselves. Now, we know when we get to the end of the book of Job that God speaks and he says that the friends of Job answered without knowledge. He corrected them. Job prayed for his friends. They were wrong. But even without getting to the last chapter in the Bible, if we were to read this book for the first time, we should know that his friends were not wholly correct because we got to see in the beginning of the book what brought about these trials in the first place. It was God himself that said to Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job? What did God say? A perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. That word perfect often in the Bible does not speak to sinless perfection as Christ is sinless, but it speaks to completeness and maturity. And when we think of David being called a man after God's own heart that fulfilled all his will, when we think of John the Baptist, whom Jesus said there hath not been a greater born among women than John the Baptist, surely that testimony of Job has to reach right up there with the greatest testimony of any saint in all of the Bible that God himself would say a perfect and upright man, he fears me and he eschews evil. But the devil received permission from God to come and to attack Job. And I will say all of us in our life have either been through some degree of trial or surely will go through some degree of trial. But probably none of us will go through what Job went through to lose all 10 of his children, all of his possessions And then to come to the place where his entire body is covered in boils and sores and he sits there in misery, scraping them away, that's enough to drive anyone to a place of despair and depression, which are real things. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, whose sermons remains to this day, suffered with extreme bouts of depression. He would preach on Sunday and wonderful things would happen. And on Monday, almost inexplicable sadness and depression would come upon him. We know David in the Psalms would express much of his heart being broken. Though Job was not perfect and God corrected him at the end of the book for seeking to justify himself, he certainly had a much better testimony than the friends of Job did. And he still said, I will not curse God and die. The Lord hath given, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked came I into the world and naked shall I leave, Job said. I didn't bring anything with me and I'm not taking anything out of this life. It's all from God and I'll give him the glory, whether good or bad happens. 
So keeping that in mind, Job now faces a trial of false accusations. Verse 24, he's answering his friends. Teach me and I will hold my tongue and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forcible are right words, but what doth your arguing reprove? Do ye imagine to reprove words and the speeches of one that is desperate, which ye, which are as the wind? Verse 27 says, Yea, ye overwhelm the fatherless, and ye dig a pit for your friend. Now therefore be content and look upon me, for it is evident unto you if I lie. Return, I pray you. Let it not be iniquity. Yea, return again. My righteousness is in it. Is there iniquity in my tongue? Cannot my taste discern perverse things? Here as he argues a little bit and fights off their accusations that his sin must have brought this great calamity and testing upon him. He says in verse 27, ye overwhelm the fatherless and ye dig a pit for your friend. The word here that is fatherless is probably talking about Job himself. And when he says your friend, he's probably talking about himself. Let me see. Uh, the word here, Job is saying you rush or you throw yourselves upon him. You fall upon him with all your might and say all that you can to devise, to charge him and to grieve him. You load him with censures and calamities. The word here rendered fatherless means a solitary person in distress as well as an orphan or one desolate. So the word speaking of the fatherless can also mean a person in distress, one who is desolate. At this point in his life, Job perhaps is fatherless because his father is never mentioned, but he is also childless. He also feels alone. He also has been oppressed. This commentary says Job intends himself by the expression, being deprived of all his children, of all his estate, and forsaken by his friends. And you dig a pit for your friend. In other words, you insult and triumph over me, whom once you own for your friend. I spoke all I thought as to my friends, and you from thence take occasion to cast me down. The word pit uh, will appear in the King James in italics, which means there's not an equivalent for it in the Hebrew, but it's added in to accurately translate the sense of what is being said. So but what they're saying is you dig a pit for your friend. You dig something, a trap for him to fall in. He's saying, you're supposed to be my friend. You're supposed to be faithful. But instead you come, you accuse me. He says, you overwhelm me, though I am in a desolate, persecuted state, and you dig a pit for me to fall into, to cast me into, to give me condemnation. We know from the beginning of the story how this began, and we know from what God says at the end of the story that what they were accusing him of was false. If there's anyone in all of Scripture who knows what it is like to deal with a false accusation, it's Jesus Christ. At his trial, they could not even get the witnesses to agree. They could not get their stories to match. Though they went out and paid false witnesses to lie about Christ, they still could not come up with a coherent attack because he had done no wrong. He was perfect, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But as they stood before Pilate and accused him, they pointed their fingers and said, here comes the one that perverts the land with his teaching. 
think about that. Think about all that was going on in the sins of that day as there are in any day. And then to point a finger at Jesus Christ himself and to say what perverts our land is the teaching and doctrine of this man. They charged him with blasphemy, which was a false accusation. They charged him with saying, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. But it was not fair because he was talking about his body, not about an act of terrorism, of destroying the temple. They said he's blasphemy for he does not deny that he's God. But it was a false accusation because he was God. And what he said was accurate. And the Pharisees in front of him had enough information to know that. But blindly in their hatred rejected him and sought his death. Falsely accused when they brought before the crowd Jesus and a man named Barabbas who was a murderer and a thief, I believe. I believe it says he was a murderer. And they said, who shall we release unto you? And they cried out, release Barabbas. Let Jesus die. Pilate, who oversaw his trial, officially pronounced him innocent. They brought a pool of water before him in the basin and he washed his hands and he said, I've washed my hands of the blood of this man. And the crowd cried out, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Falsely accused because his official pronouncement was innocent, but yet his sentence was death. If we come to a place in life where we are being falsely accused, this is perhaps one of the greatest pains in life to deal with. And not only was Job being falsely accused, it was by his friends. It was by the people who he thought he could count on. Even his wife, the closest person to him on earth, said, why dost thou retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But Job in his integrity said, speak not as one of the foolish women speak. I always loved the fact that he did not call his wife a foolish woman. He said, don't speak as the foolish woman speaks. She had just lost her 10 babies as well. And he had compassion. But being alone and being attacked by his friends was an even harder thing to deal with than if a stranger had accused him of something. David in the Psalms when we believe he was speaking about Ahithophel, who was his closest counselor, he said, he said, I could have borne it if it was an enemy that betrayed me. But he said, we walked together. We took sweet counsel in the house of God. And mine own friend has betrayed me. Jesus Christ in the garden, he was not simply accused by the Pharisees and by the Jews who rejected him, but Judas, who was one of the twelve who carried the money bag, who saw the miracles, who walked with him. Judas betrayed him with a kiss. This is hard to deal with. If we have a betrayal by a family member or by a close friend, if we are accused of something we know in our heart we are not guilty of, This can be a crushing blow to our spirit and something that we have to go to God and deal with or else the hurt and the bitterness can overtake us. I knew I had something else I was about to say about that and I think I lost my train of thought. I'll see if God brings it back. If not, we'll move on. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. We'll come back to the book of Job, but we'll look at one verse here. That's what I was going to say. Sometimes we can become very defensive of criticism. A pastor said that 
he had one man in his church who every single year would come at the end of the year and he would have a list of complaints and of corrections. And he said, I thought about it and I thought about just turning them away. But what I decided to do was to sit down and to listen to what he had to say. And he said, as the man would give his complaints, he would write them down and there would be about seven or eight of them and he would pray about it and he would go over it one by one. And almost every single one, the spirit of God would say to him and he would look at the facts and he would say, that's not fair. That's not true. The man is wrong. But he said almost every single time there would be one thing that would show up on that list that I would circle that God would convict my heart about and I would pray about it and I would try to get better. But but the point is we should not be so defensive that we cannot hear criticism. The Bible says if you rebuke a foolish man, he hates you. But if you approve a wise man, he loves you. We should always be open to looking to the word of God and looking in our heart and listening to what others say and say, you know what? I could do better. But also when those times come, sometimes we know that what we're being accused of is not fair and it is not right. And at that point, rather than looking to get back at the person or take vengeance or be bitter, we have to deal with it. We have to go to God and deal with it in our heart. Here in Galatians chapter 6, this speaks of what we are supposed to do when someone is overtaken in a fault. Verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. The Bible speaks here that when a, bro- when a brother is overtaken in a fault, our heart should be to go to that person in a spirit of meekness which does not mean weakness, but it means lowliness. It means humility. It means when others sin, we do not begin to cast stones and say, well, I knew they must have been into something wrong. Well, I'm just glad. Remember the story of the Pharisee and the publican. Thank you, God, that I'm not as bad as this person over here. But the man who was a worse sinner, who beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Bible says his prayer was answered. But the prayer of the Pharisee, who was the hypocrite, His prayer was unanswered because he looked at himself in self-righteousness and that manifested by him throwing stones at another and thinking that he was better. Matthew chapter 7, we'll read a couple verses over there. But Galatians 6, 1 also says, "...considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted." God is saying if when we see other people who are struggling or who fall, we look at them with condemnation instead of with loving meekness and the goal of helping them. If we forget to consider ourselves, we might also fall into that trap. And if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Always remember it doesn't matter what we see a brother or sister in Christ fall into sin. There but for the grace of God could be you or could be I because we are in our flesh. So rather than casting stones or looking, sometimes our reaction is just to gossip and not to out of deep concern for the person, say, pray for them. Let's do something for them. Let's go to them. Let's give to them. Let's pray. Sometimes we just, well, did you hear what this person did? And did you happen not with a spiritual goal, but almost with one of just spreading the news and of casting stones? God says, remember yourself and humble yourself because you could be the one to fall into that sin. 
Matthew 7, 1 through 3 would have been good words for Job's friends to remember, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? We've talked a lot about it before. It doesn't mean when a person lives in open sin and says, I don't care what I do is right. And God agrees with what I do is right. But I won't talk about why the Bible says it's right or wrong. I just say God approves of me. It doesn't mean that we don't use our discernment and our wisdom and sometimes our words to rebuke someone and to point them back to Christ. But what he says is do not judge. Do not pass sentence on someone else. Do not pretend that you are God and that you know all of the facts for God is the only one who truly knows what happened and what's within the heart of that person and why what has happened is happening. Verse three, he says, why do you not? He says, why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? The word beam, I believe, has to do with like a big piece of timber. And I know I looked up the word mote. Does anyone remember to what that refers to? It's something much, much smaller. It's like a speck. So God is saying sometimes if we're not careful, what we do is we overlook hypocrisy and sin in our own life to call out what's in someone else's life, which may not even be as bad as what we are doing. And if we are not careful, we will become self-righteous and will overlook our sin while condemning others. Verse four, or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the moat out of thine eye and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite first cast out the beam out of thine own eye and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the moat of thy brother's eye. The context of what it's saying is do not become so judgmental that you condemn others when there's things in your own heart that you can work on. And this surely would have been good for Job's friends to remember Job later on when he is defending himself right before Elihu begins to speak, I think chapter 31 or something, he says a part of his record was Job gave to the poor. When a visitor came who had nowhere to stay, Job gave him a spot. When someone was desolate who did not have opportunity to work, he would help them. He said, I have not lusted after my neighbor's wife. I've not taken that which is not mine own. No, Job did not have this avalanche of trials fall upon his head because he was a worse sinner than his friends. But that's what they thought. And that's what they showed up and in so many words said. And God said, no, you're wrong. They should not have been judging and presuming themselves to be God. Let's look back to the book of Job. We see their false accusations that Job dealt with. Next, we see Job expresses the frailty of man. Job chapter 7 and verse number 1. Job chapter 7 and verse number 1. Is there not an appointed time to man upon earth? And are not his days also like the days of an hireling? Here, Job is saying there is an appointed time to man upon earth. God knows for each and every one of us, as well as he knows the day of our birth, he knows the day of our death. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. There's a lot of things that we're afraid of. And this year, a lot of people have spread fear. But did you know that the death rate for human beings is 100%? No one lives forever. Job is saying we are frail. 
All we can do is look to God. Job chapter 12 and verse 9. Who knoweth not in all these things that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? Job 12.10 In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Here Job expresses the truth that in the hand of God is the soul of everything that lives and the breath of all mankind. My next breath and your next breath is a gift from God. And apart from God and His grace to allow us to have it, we cannot continue. The New Testament says, By Christ all things consist, basically meaning continuing to exist, holding together. Someday this earth will be destroyed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. The elements shall melt with a fervent heat. What will God do? Will He command the fire to come? Perhaps. But some have said perhaps God will simply let go and it will be destroyed because God does not hold it together. By Him all things consist. Now this verse should remind us to humble ourselves, but it also should give us faith to remember that if our breath and our soul is in the hand of God, neither one can be lost unless God allows it. Sometimes God allows it because we go off into sin, as Samson did, and we continue headlong and refuse reproof and refuse his correction and trials and pulling us back to him. And God says, okay, I'll let you die. But as we seek to leave the will of God, we should not be afraid tomorrow that we could be in a car accident because God's in control. And if God wants us to live another 40 years, he'll keep us safe on the road. Faith without works is dead, so also watch the road and don't text and do all those things. You know, sometimes God may let you go because you're not doing what you know is right. But we put our, we do the best we can, and then we put our faith in God. Yes. What if there's a mass shooter? What if there's a terrorist attack? Maybe there will be. But Jesus said, fear not those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell. He says our soul is in the hand of God. That means if Jesus is our Savior and we die, our salvation is just as secure as the strength of God to hold it. And that knows no limits. Have faith. The book of Job teaches us the providence of God. Job didn't know. He, th he was flying blind. But we know that God, nothing happened to him until God said, okay, I'll take that hedge of protection and peel it back a little bit. Take his things, but don't touch his body. And you know what? The devil couldn't touch his body until God said, okay, I'll pull it back a little bit more. You can touch his body, but don't kill him. The devil hit his body pretty hard, but Job didn't die. God was in control. God is providential. Let us remember that and have faith. So we remember that we are frail, but we also remember we're in the hands of someone who is not frail. Job chapter 14 and verse 1. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. Wow. Man that is born of woman, that's all of us, man and woman, mankind. Few days and full of trouble. How many people could identify with that? Our time is not infinite, it's short. Our days are not perfect. There will be trouble. Verse 2 says, He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He flees as a shadow and continues not. What is that speaking of? The new, it's speaking of the brevity of life. 
The book of Isaiah says that man is as grass. It grows up. It's there for a moment. Then it's cut down and it's gone. The book of James says, what is your life? Behold, it is a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. Over and over and over again, the Bible gives us these illustrations to remember. Your life is as grass. It's like a flower. It's like a vapor. It's like a shadow. It's there for a moment and then it's gone. Why does God put these things in the Bible? Is it to to depress us or make us afraid and remember we're all going to die? No, but it is to remind us that our life is short and that we are to put our eyes to Jesus Christ and live for what is eternal for the treasure we have on this earth is fleeting. Oh, you want to make money? That's good. I, I do too. Money, it takes things to buy things and money is a good thing to have. But Jesus said, he who earneth wages, earneth wages to put them into a bag with holes. Anyone else identify with that word of Jesus also? No, don't lay up the treasure on earth. This is not your home. You're not a citizen here. You're an ambassador for Christ. Yes, provide for your family, but lay up treasure in heaven where the moths cannot corrupt, the rust cannot corrupt, and the thieves cannot break through and steal. Remember, life is short. Remember, if you're lost and you don't know about your eternity, come to Christ in faith and repentance and receive him as your savior. If there's relationships you need to make right, then make them right. If there's something God puts on your heart to do, do it. We don't know if we have tomorrow. Verse three. And dost thou open thine eyes upon such an one and bringest me into judgment with thee? Again, speaking to the fact his friends are judging him. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Seeing his days are determined. The number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Again, speaking to the point that God has numbered our days. He's appointed the day of our death. And we cannot go past the bounds that God has set for our life. We don't have the power to do that. Verse 6. Turn from him that he may rest till he shall accomplish as an hireling his day. For there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stalk thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud and bring forth bows like a plant. Behind church we had a tree that went lower and lower and lower and all the way into the ground, and then the tree it looked dead but it began to bring forth flowers. And that's what this verse is talking about. The tree had been cut down, but maybe it will come in and receive nutrients and live again after it has died. Verse 10 says, But a man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, a man giveth up the ghost, and where is he? As the waters fail from the sea, and the flood decayeth and dryeth up, so man lieth down and riseth not, till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. Job expresses here in the next couple verses some doubt. He expresses doubt. But we know the answer when he says, um, verse 10, a man giveth up the ghost and where is he? We know there are two options. One is heaven and one is hell. One is the lake of fire the ultimate resting place of hell where the absence of God will be and one is heaven where the presence of God will be. And if we have received Christ as our savior, he freely gives us our home in heaven. But if not, we will be lost. Verse 13. 
Verse, did we read, let's read verse 12. So man lieth down and riseth not till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. Oh, that thou wouldest hide me in the grave, that thou wouldest keep me secret until thy wrath be passed, that thou wouldest appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Verse 15, thou shalt call and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. Job does not emphatically state that we will not live again after we die, but I think probably what he's saying is that once we die, our life is over. You don't get to come back on this earth in this life and have another chance. We will live again with God, but we have one life. Only one life soon is passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So we see Job expressed dealing with false accusations. Then we saw the frailty of man. Now, lastly and quickly, we see Job express faith in God. In verse 14, he asked the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? But he also expressed great faith in God. Job 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Job said, though God himself slays me with his hand, yet will I trust him, and I will maintain mine ways before him. He also shall be my salvation. Don't let anyone tell you that the Old Testament is all works, but the New Testament is grace. Don't let anyone tell you there's no grace in the Old Testament. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham had faith in God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And as David said here, Job says, he shall be my salvation. Job chapter 19, we already referenced how in the beginning of the book, he expressed that faith in God and maintained his integrity. Now read Job 19, some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I have three minutes to finish here and then we'll be done. Job 19 in verse 23. Uh, let's read verse 22. Why do you persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Then Job in his heart longs and he says, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. I think God heard the cry of Job. And we literally sit here this morning with his very words printed in a book. And though his words... I don't know if they were ever graven with an iron pen in the side of a rock. They are in the rock of the word of God, the rock of ages, his very word that lasts forever and ever to every generation. And also throughout eternity and every generation of the church has gotten to see the story of Job and take hope in the fact that perhaps I'm not being persecuted and going through trials because God is angry at me. But perhaps it's because God has a plan through these trials to work good. Verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Job said in chapter 14, If a man die, shall he live again? Here he answers emphatically for himself, Though one day... This physical body I'm in, Job said, has been consumed by worms. Though my flesh, he's saying, be placed in the ground. The word reins is kidneys in the Old Testament. It's sometimes used for the way we use heart. 
that we say your heart and your soul, and it's sort of speaking more of a soul. They used to say that about kidneys instead of heart. I don't know if either one of them really makes a lot of sense when you think about it, but it's different ways to talk about our spirit and our soul more than just the physical body part. And he said, someday my body will be laid in the ground and worms shall consume it. But he said, I have faith in something that my Redeemer is alive. Who is our Redeemer? It's Jesus Christ. He was in the grave, but he's alive now and he's redeemed our soul from hell and from the devil. And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Remember Enoch, who before any of the Bible was written in the days of Noah, he said, Behold, the Lord God cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all that are ungodly. Yes, in the Old Testament, they knew that there would come a latter day, an end times event, where the Redeemer would come and stand upon the earth. And Job said, not only will he be there, but I will be there. And though this body I'm speaking in now has been decomposed, yet shall I be there and see God with mine own eyes in a brand new body in my flesh who shall change our vile body, that it shall be likened unto his glorious body. At his appearing, when he appears, Philippians says, we shall receive a new body that shall not be changed. Yes, Job himself will be with God. Enoch will be with God. If we die before then or not, we will come with him to the earth at the latter day and see him in a brand new body that has been redeemed. John was caught up into the third heaven and he saw the church gathered around the throne waiting for the seals to be opened and for the end times events to unfold. Who were all those? It was the redeemed church of God up to that point in history. I don't know if he was able to look throughout the crowd and find himself, but John himself was there in the crowd. And so was Enoch. And so was Job. And they will come with him and he shall live and reign. For a thousand years. If a man die, shall he live again? Job emphatically answers yes. Here in these few short verses in the Old Testament, perhaps the oldest book in all of the Bible, we see in verse 23 and 24 a longing for the Bible. We see Jesus, our Redeemer. We see the living God. We see the Redeemer coming to earth in the latter day. We see Christians resurrected into a new body standing with the Redeemer on the earth in the latter day. Yes, there's an amazing amount of doctrine in the Old Testament. God used various means to get the, to get the teachings to them, but it agrees with the New Testament. How beautiful is the Word of God and what an incredible expression of faith that Job gave there in those verses. And you and I, every single one of us, can claim exactly what he said about the Redeemer and about a new body and about standing with Him if we have received Christ as our Savior and trust in Him and His shed blood only and not in our good works to take us to heaven. Heavenly Father, bless these thoughts, bless the service now that is to come. We thank You for being our Redeemer and the amazing God that You are. May You bless what we put our hands to do and may You receive the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.